beyond infinity. This is Open for Business on RPPFM, coming to you live from the Bendigo Bank Studio on this Monday morning, the 16th of November. Hope you're doing okay as you go about uh, your business and starting to feel good down here with 17 days of no new COVID cases. A cue for us to speak to our COVID-19 reporter, Piers Cunningham. Piers, welcome once again. Good morning, Brandon. So again, you know, here we are in Victoria. We're looking at the numbers both in North America and also in Europe. And uh, Dan Andrews, of course, he had his detractors. But I tell you what, 17 days straight, those that love him absolutely adore him now. Yeah, that's right. He can sort of say, well, the supercomputing was working pretty well for us and the emphasis on caution and taking time and, and not blowing it you know, by by uh, responding to the great pressure that there was to open up and to relax the restrictions, all those things, you know, that those measures and that approach seem for now to have uh, done the right thing and, and certainly won him some accolades, as you say, particularly among his supporter base. So let's com- compare and contrast then. I thought it would be interesting today, Piers, and we set you a little bit of homework to have a look at what the Swedes are doing, because in contrast to what we've been doing here in Melbourne, of course, the Swedes have decided to persist, and they continue to persist, with this notion of herd mentality. Some restrictions in and around are big events and, of course, social distancing, but nevertheless, life, according to the Swedes, goes on pretty much as it did before COVID-19. Is it working? Yeah, look, everyone's talked a lot about Sweden. It's always been held up as a sort of alternative to lockdowns and, and, you know, wasn't it great, wasn't it successful what they've achieved there and didn't have to go to lockdown. But I think now, given the sort of numbers that are being seen in Sweden, people might be uh, rethinking that, uh, you know, that acceptance of the success of the Swedish approach. So the numbers in Sweden... Uh, well, there's 177,355 confirmed cases, 6,164 deaths. Uh, but they have seen an 80% surge last week in the virus, and there are 6,000 deaths over there and rising. So there are concerns about the strategy, which basically relied on people taking personal responsibility. Now, I like this, resp- uh, this approach because... It's, it's sort of a non-nanny state approach, and, and that's you know some people sort of see that, that the way that we were treated in Victoria was a bit of a an example of, of uh, the nanny state going berserk. Uh, so in Sweden, it was uh, very much about personal responsibility. If you didn't want to get sick, or if you were elderly, you know you do the right thing, and, and then you uh, you save yourself headaches down the track, and you prevent yourself getting the virus. Uh, but um, the government now. Uh, and, and they've never had fines. They've never had the threat of fines or uh, any kind of uh, actual penalty if you didn't go with, with what the government was saying in regards to uh, preventing the virus. Uh, so they had recommendations, but they didn't have actual um, you know, laws which, which imposed them on people. So um, they're now uh, announcing new recommendations, but they're still just recommendations, and they are don't use public transport in Sweden if you can avoid it. Avoid contact with those outside your immediate household. Uh, limits of eight people in a restaurant at a time. As I said, no legal enforcement of that. In Sweden, as elsewhere, um, the, the people who were getting the virus were the poor. Uh, so this was... Um, uh, 
This was, uh, this was the same thing that happened in other countries, uh, both first world and third world countries, the US, Brazil, India, and, uh, and many other countries around the world. Unfortunately, it's the poor who were overrepresented in uh, the, uh, the number of cases of COVID. And, uh, and that was partly because in some cases they didn't have the option to socially isolate. I mean, you can imagine living in, in a slum in, in Delhi, for example, uh, you would find it very difficult, if not impossible, to socially isolate there. Whether you actually got that message from health authorities, whether that was properly communicated to you, uh, that was another thing that may, may not have happened for the poorer people uh, in first world countries like Sweden, but also in, in other places that were um, really suffering a big, a big toll. Um, Unlike in Melbourne, and I was, I was interested to read just now that uh, there, there are doctors who've been critical of the public health agencies for downplaying the risks um, and have called for greater government uh, intervention. So that's almost the exact opposite to what we had with the COVID medical group, uh, which was a group of doctors in Melbourne who were writing to the open letters to the Victorian government saying, oh, we need to back off from, uh, from lockdown because of the social and, and health effects and suicides and depression and all the rest of it that went with with that prolonged lockdown we had in Melbourne with the second wave. Uh, so, so it's kind of opposite uh, things happening in Sweden to what happened in Melbourne. Uh, the chief epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell, in, in, uh, in Sweden uh, was reportedly considering uh, if a higher death toll for the elderly was acceptable if it led to herd immunity. Now, that was back in, in March and April, quite controversial uh, thinking there. Uh, but that same uh, same leader now says that herd immunity is neither ethical or justifiable uh, and that Sweden's health, health system is now under strain. So but things changing quite dramatically as the virus uh, swings into gear as, as Europe heads into winter and Sweden gets particularly cold, being in Scandinavia. Um, there are also suggestions that Sweden's early testing in March and April uh, may, may have actually understated the number of cases because they just didn't do that many tests. Um, other differences in the approach between Melbourne and Victoria and Sweden is that there's fewer government updates, only twice a week rather than the daily spiel that we got from Dan Andrews for, I think it was, I don't know, it was like three or four months' worth of, of uh, press conferences from Dan Andrews every day. Um, there was also a lack of belief uh, in Sweden that the virus could actually be stopped. Now, many people say that that's actually wrong. The virus can be stopped. It just comes back to that, that, uh, that debate about the trade-off between adverse social and economic effects of lockdown and managing the exponential viral spreading through the community and eventually uh, potentially an overload of health system. Interesting, isn't it, Piers? I mean, you know, if you have a look at Sweden, that's why it, for us I think it's quite interesting to have a look at it. I mean, a population of 10 million people at the moment. But also another stat that I saw was that compared to the rest of Scandinavia, the Swedes doing a little bit tougher at the moment. In fact, um, more than 10 times their death rate now, more than 10 times that of Norway and Denmark, who, of course, have taken a much more draconian view of COVID-19 and probably sort of followed more the Victorian model. That's right. So Sweden has the 14th highest um, death per capita in the world. And as you say, it's got a population of 10 million, so less than half that of Melbourne, uh, and, uh, and a much higher death toll, uh, over 6,000, uh, and by far the highest death toll of any Scandinavian country. So compared with Denmark, Sweden, Finland... Uh, sorry, uh, De- Denmark, Norway and Finland. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons to question the success of that 
I think that you know people are being forced to reconsider some of their views that they've had. And I imagine in America, with uh, you know with really high case numbers over 24 hours, 181,066 new cases in America, uh, 10.6 million confirmed cases in that country, and really sadly and staggering, 242,000 deaths in the United States alone. Which, which for a country is, is, uh, you know, that prides itself on being technologically advanced and, and does have an advanced health system, uh, for, it, for those figures to apply to that country is just staggering. And uh, very sadly for America, the, uh, the outgoing Trump administration is not cooperating with the new, uh, you know, the, the Biden incoming, the, the, the president-elect, uh, and uh, they're not actually paving the way for a uh, for a kind of proper response to the pandemic over there, even though that's exactly what Biden and his team want to do. Well, it is interesting. Yeah, we heard that in the uh, in the news at the top of the clock. Obviously, there's some pushback from Trump and his administration uh, to the Biden. Uh president-elect and his team. And also, of course, the whole thing now appears to be sort of partisan down uh, political lines. Uh, you're either for Trumpy and his notion that uh, you just got to let this thing run. We, we got this and we got a vaccine coming. Uh, it's sort of basically Sweden writ large or something uh, a little bit more draconian, uh, a la Biden. We got to get this thing under control and real fast. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I mean, you know, look, I just think those numbers alone speak for themselves. You know, 181,000 uh, new cases in the last 24 hours. Uh, the numbers there really are, are horrifying. I think two days ago uh, there were 142,000 on, on November the 13th, according to the WHO website. Uh, and the death toll, look, while it's, you know, I suppose compared with that number, the death toll is, um, it's, it's, you know, 1,300 around there. Uh, per day, but but that's just adding up and up and up. And as the number of cases go up, you know, there's still even if it is a small percentage, it's still a lot of deaths. And people have been making comparisons about, you know, uh, you know what America lost in the Vietnam War and how they reacted to that. What they lost in, you know, in in uh, 9/11. Now I know those were different different things. They weren't pandemics, but they're still loss of loss of American lives. And uh, I don't think any administration uh, would be would be uh, at all proud of, of what's happened in America in the last year with the pandemic. And I think people do have to sort of acknowledge that some countries have done better than others, and Australia, thankfully for us, is, is one of, among those countries uh, that have done a lot better than other countries. And, and you have to look at why. And, uh, and I think that this is what... This is, I'm sure there are Americans who are looking, and I think at Australia and other countries that have been more successful. I think uh, apparently... Our Prime Minister Morrison did have a conversation with uh, with the President-elect Biden uh, recently where they talked about that and, and apparently there is going to be some information sharing between the two countries and providing that new administration in America with uh, some of the lessons that have been hard learned and, and uh, hard won in Australia. Yes, very, very interesting, isn't it? I must say, at least the American system seems to be coping with this huge presentation of numbers. Whether they've got enough beds going forward is probably one of the big issues for a lot of the casualty and emergency medicine, because once they do get them in, once they can get them into the hospitals, it seems that they are reducing that death rate. But if they're running out of beds to treat people with and get these new uh, drug regimes into them, like the remdesivir and stuff, 
um, then obviously that uh, that death rate is probably going to jump some more. But certainly they've reacted and they've evolved their treatment processes very quickly in the last three or four months as well to get a much better or get that death rate well and truly down as a percentage of overall presentation. But as I say, if the beds start filling up and they've got no way to treat people, then you're going to start seeing that death rate really climb in the next couple of weeks. And I think that's what some of the US medicos are really worried about. Piers, these are worrying days, but um, once again here in Victoria, of course, uh, the birds are chirping in the trees, the sun is out, uh, we have the prospect of a lovely summer coming up, and uh, our timing in the southern hemisphere is going to be perfect because theoretically by the time the next winter comes around, well, the first of the uh, the viral vaccines will be available to us. Yeah, look, that, that's right, that is uh, you know that's just lucky timing, and obviously being uh, being well away from the major population centres of the world down here in the southern hemisphere, in the middle of a large ocean uh, like New Zealand, like other island island countries, Iceland, I believe, has done pretty well in, against COVID. There are natural advantages that Australia has, but I do think that people need to be, you know, there's, there's, particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, there's been a great amount of lockdown fatigue. People need to be wary of complacency. Uh, the figures that you know, 15 or 16 days now with no new cases and no deaths, they're great figures to, to see that, uh, that the testing numbers have actually been going down a bit. Uh, most recent, uh, you know, I think it's as, as little as uh, you know, under 10,000 tests. And the government in Victoria has now announced that they're going to set up some, um, some cautionary pop-up testing facilities, I think it was announced by the Premier yesterday, which will go back to these high-risk areas where there have been outbreaks in the past and, and see if they can find some remnants of the virus that have, have kept going quietly uh, without notice to, uh, to keep an eye on, uh, you know, areas where there still may be the virus just undetected, whether it's through asymptomatic testing uh, or, th- or through, um, uh, you know, they do things like they, they monitor uh, sewerage, for example, and if they find the, the virus in sewerage, then uh, that's... That's a place to keep an eye on and, and to uh, open up those pop-up testing sites. So I think that people do need to be wary of complacency, especially as the weather gets hotter, uh, people assemble in crowds, hospitality opens up, people tend to drop their guard when they're celebrating and, and drinking with friends uh, over summer. And uh, we do need to be mindful that the virus is probably not eradicated completely and that it can be pockets of it uh, lurking uh, undetected. Same thing, look what's happened in South Australia recently. I mean, they've been talking about the uh, hotel quarantine leakage in South Australia. So uh, we do need to keep our guard up. Uh, We don't know whether the vaccine, how widely available and how effective it will be. So uh, I think that just assuming that that our timing and our luck will, will, will be on our side with the pandemic is probably being a bit risky at this stage. So... Uh, beware of lockdown fatigue and beware of complacency. Well, we are the lucky country, Pierce. I must say it was pretty eerie. Um, and, and still, of course, the Victorian economy got a long way to go. I was out at uh, Tullamarine at the weekend. I had to drop my big boy off. He was going back into a hotspot of coronavirus, going back into North America. But right. uh, I tell you what, uh, getting out to Tullamarine and just seeing the long-term car park with maybe one or two cars in it. I mean, there were sites out there at the weekend that I've never seen at Tullamarine before. Literally nobody literally nobody, just a few people getting onto one flight that was going up to Sydney at about 10.30 on Saturday. Everything else just totally empty, just incredible. 
Uh, just amazing scenes out of Tullamarine at the weekend and obviously indicative of just how far we have got to go in terms of getting this economy back in order. And interesting listening to Mr Joyce, uh, CEO of Qantas, saying how the uh, the big Australian is going to be able to weather the pandemic and then come back bigger and better than ever. I'm sure it will, but certainly there's a long way to go yet, Pierce. Yeah, indeed. And we've got like, a big infrastructure announcement from the Victorian Government of Public Housing. I think it's $5 billion dollars to be spent, uh, you know, addressing... I think what were highlighted uh, as, as really a little bit antiquated, I remember my grandmother telling me as a child that uh, the Housing Commission flats would be the, the slums of the future. And, and I think that, you know, they do... You know, people in them deserve to have better facilities now in, in Melbourne and in Australia. Uh, and so the, the government in Victoria is doing that, and it's partly doing it to, uh, to uh, also stimulate the economy as well as address the... Uh, you know that aged facility that uh, that, that is is there for uh, for many people to to live in in, in uh, spread throughout Melbourne as, as those as the housing commissions are. So an upgrade there and a big boost for the economy. Also, I was reading that uh, the uh, the government, the federal government, and CSL Commonwealth Serum Laboratory are going to be investing in building a big vaccine manufacturing campus out near Tullamarine Airport. So that's another. A uh, big boost to the Victorian economy as well, and and that's not just to help with the COVID pandemic, but also future pandemics that may arise because this may not be the last one. We uh, we really don't know about that, but scientists have been warning for a while that this could happen. Bill Gates uh, was talking about it happening five years ago on YouTube. Uh, that all came true very uh, very seriously, as we, as we know, around the world this year, uh, and so there, there could well be other. Uh, pandemics that we need to be on the on the lookout for in future. So that's that's good news about that uh, big laboratory uh, vaccine laboratory being built out at Tullamarine Airport. And ironic, isn't it, that uh, George Bush as well did a big think tank thing on this about 10, 15 years ago in the United States as well. At that stage, the USA was probably one of the most prepared countries in the world to take on a pandemic. And ironic that that whole system, uh, again, ironically, I think perhaps under the Obama uh, regime, uh, basically ran out of money. And by the time, of course, uh, President Trump inherited the situation, it wasn't there to react in the way that many Americans assumed that it might have. Um, Interesting days, Piers. We are going to follow the situation very closely. We thank you very much indeed for your input today. Open for business, special COVID-19 reporter is Piers Cunningham. Piers, we welcome you back to the radio station again on Wednesday when we're next back on air. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Our intrepid COVID-19 reporter Piers Cunningham has been uh, keeping an eye on the latest figures and Piers as we come to air today. Yet more good news for us here in Victoria and Melbourne and our part of the world, of course, 19 days straight, no COVID active cases. Pretty incredible. Yeah, that's right. And that's uh, bearing in mind that there has been an outbreak in South Australia. And so there's a sort of renewed push to tighten borders up. Certainly um, WA and Queensland jealously guarding their their low numbers or zero numbers of COVID cases uh, in those states of Australia. So some people are calling it a bit of a, a constitutional crisis and that uh, the borders of Australia should be open as per the original intentions of Federation. And Greg Hunt, who is calling for proportional responses to, to uh, what's happening in South Australia, which it, 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 it's sort of been defined as a hot spot, uh, but by WA, for example, but 
really it's confined to one family and it, and it is under control. I mean, it, it, it's sad to see that happening over there and it, it, it reminds us all that there, um, that there is a virus that are lurking in the background in unknown places and places we least expect to find it, perhaps. But uh, a proportional response is required and, um, and that, that is something that the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has been calling all parties to think about. Indeed, the, uh, the member for Flinders has had a few things to say about that. In fact, it's very, been very interesting, hasn't it, the way that this whole pandemic has sort of redefined and questioned the state versus federal relationship as well. Obviously, I think there's going to be a lot of talk once this settles down about exactly who, what, how and when. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it sort of seems to run against the uh, whole idea of federation, which was, um, you know, 1901, that, that the, uh, the previous, what had been colonies, uh, starting with New South Wales and, and then spreading from there. They were actually kind of separate colonies, but all within one continent. And Federation was designed to bring it all under one central government and to get around some of the disputes and uh, divisions that uh, could exist between con- competing interests in different colonies. So, yeah, it's, it's a pity that uh, we're still seeing kind of uh, a bit of a throwback to those colonial days, uh, but it has highlighted what, what is in the Constitution, what is part of the, uh, the the blueprint of federation in this country, and as you say, there may be some calls to revise that so that we don't have this sort of thing happening again. Interesting days, Piers, and uh, we were talking the other day about the Europeans, how they're coping with this uh, second wave, of course. We were mentioning the Swedes, and it looks like now, latest news coming out of London is it's going to be a pretty uh, dreary old uh, Christmas for the UK, because it looks like uh, Boris Johnson, his government, now thinking about um, all sorts of lockdown measures to try and get the second wave under control over there. Yeah, look, it, it really is. The, the figures around the world are pretty horrifying. 456,000 new cases in the last 24 hours, a total number of confirmed cases of almost 55 million and 1.32 million deaths worldwide from COVID-19. So it is not over. Uh, one thing that I think is, is an interesting subject is we kind of get things under control a bit more in Melbourne and uh, we are moving towards a, a more relaxed uh, setting as far as restrictions are concerned. The government's talking about relaxing the mask-wearing rule. Um, I came across a podcast yesterday uh, with Bill Gates and Rashida Jones um, where they ask big questions. And the first one, it was the first one that's been done. I think it's going to be a regular thing. Um, it it, it was, was looking at the world after the pandemic. Now, Bill Gates is, is well regarded for, uh, for, well, for various things, for instance, that the, uh, his foundation, the Bill and, Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, work in Africa and other uh, parts of the world where they've helped with uh, with dealing with malaria and other diseases that the world has had on over the years. Uh, he was uh, he five years ago. He he did a uh, a speech where he warned the world that a pandemic, uh, the likes of coronavirus, was was on the cards, and he warned governments to prepare for it. And he he cited the experience with uh, with SARS and with some of the other examples we've had in the last. 20, 15, 20 years, where diseases have crossed from animals to human populations. And he said, that five years ago, he said that there's, there's no reason why that won't happen again. Now, in this podcast I listened to, uh, Bill Gates and Rashida Jones, uh, he talks about what the world's going to be like in, you know, post-pandemic. Obviously, uh, we have a long way to go uh, to get to that point. He also, on that particular podcast, he has Dr Anthony Fauci, who's the 
the chief medical officer, if you like, of the United States. Uh, And uh, so it's a pretty high-powered conversation, and it's worth listening to. But I thought it was interesting just to sort of get a snapshot of what what the world might look like post-pandemic. And and one of the things they talk about is uh, is that the way people work is is likely to change. And and we've been, you know, this is something that people have talked about in Australia, I'm sure, uh, quite a bit. As we've worked from home, we've got more used to working remotely and doing Zoom meetings and uh, teleconferencing to replace our normal face-to-face meetings. Well, Gates is suggesting that that trend will likely continue and that, that, that one of the things which will be slow to change... He talks about a very gradual recovery, not a full opening, because, because either the, the vaccines that are around won't be fully available... Um, or they may not be fully effective, or they may be anti-vaxxers or people who refuse to uh, accept the science behind them who will refuse to take these vaccines. Uh, and, and that's another thing that they talk about in that, uh, in, that in, in that podcast. But uh, he says that likely there won't be a return to work as we've known it, that people will realise that they can do things remotely and that you'll have less social interaction through work for safety reasons and because it's done remotely where possible. And your social, you'll replace that social life with your local community where you live. So instead of having that, that, that contact which people enjoy through, through their work, they'll actually make up for it by having closer connections to the community where they live around, with, around their house, around their home. Uh, and we're already seeing that in Victoria because there's a, and around Australia, but in, in Victoria there's a lot of people looking at the Mornington Peninsula to move out to. Uh, I, I've got a few contacts in real estate where I am on the Southern Peninsula and they're, they're reporting that it is literally going crazy. You know, hundreds of people a day looking at houses down on the Southern Peninsula. I'm sure it's the same elsewhere in, in uh, regional Victoria as well. There's a push to, or there's a realisation that you can work remotely and you get perhaps bigger, bigger bang for your bucks if you buy outside Melbourne. Uh, you have a better lifestyle. Uh, so, so interesting changes that will be for the long term after the pandemic's over. Yes, Piers, very, very interesting indeed. And, of course, uh, COVID-19 is what we're coping with at the moment. What is COVID-21 or COVID-22 going to be looking like? Also interesting that Gates there, alongside of Fauci on the podcast, given the conspiratorialists, I'm sure that they will be thinking all sorts of dire consequences of those two getting together and opining about what the future world is going to look like. And, of course, as we mentioned here before in the past, it was George Bush and Rumsfeld who, about 15 or 20 years ago, also predicted and tried to plan for a massive pandemic way back then. And he, in fact, had Washington all ready for such an occurrence. But as we've also noted that in the administrations subsequent to that, well, basically that whole preparedness was wound down to the point of where we are today with uh, President Trump, of course, still trying to cope with and uh, trying to see off uh, what has been a pretty devastating pandemic in the USA. And it's interesting, Fauci was quite complimentary about Australia. Um, he, he cited Australia as an example of, of how to, you know, how to deal with the pandemic in a, in a constructive and effective way. Australia and South, South Korea were singled out by Fauci as, as countries that the United States in particular can learn from. Uh, and uh, they did emphasise you need to believe in the science. Uh, that they were critical of the anti-vaxxer movement. They said that that is really anti-science and anti-reality. 
Uh, and they also um, were very, uh, very... Uh, em they emphasised the need to wear masks. And, and that over in America, you can almost, uh, you know, you can pick the, the uh, you know, people's political affiliation by whether they're wearing a mask or not over there. Republicans, you know, were, were not really encouraged to wear them and it was almost a kind of badge of honour to not wear them and show support for the president who... Has, uh, has has also chosen not to wear a mask very often. And, th and that, of course, is, as some observers, is the tragedy of the USA, that basically it's sort of fallen down political lines to wear or not to wear, and it's basically going to show your political affiliation. Of course, there's this sort of staunch right wing nowhere uh, and uh, basically thumbing your nose at the pandemic, which, of course, we've seen the consequences of in the USA. But again... Uh, probably a lot more to run over there as uh, the predictions are that it's going to get even worse before it gets better in the USA. Piers, thank you so much indeed. If people did want to listen in and get to that podcast, how do they hear Mr. Gates and where did we find him? Yeah, look, if you, you can look up Apple Podcasts. It's called Bill Gates and Rashida Jones Ask Bigger Questions. It's episode one. was posted recently, so there'll be more of them, I believe. Uh, and... Um, you can get it also through other podcast platforms on the internet. So I just search for Bill Gates and Rashida Jones and uh, and you'll find that. But I thought it was very interesting and good to hear from Fauci, who, who really um, struck me as a, as a, a very sensible uh, voice in America who, who deserves to be listened to. Interesting. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed uh, for being uh, on hand and being our special COVID-19 reporter here at RPPFM. Appreciate your time, Piers, very much. We will talk to you again when we return with uh, our Monday edition of uh, Open for Business. Certainly saving our tears for another day here at RPPFM. Everybody's celebrating what has been a fantastic uh, return to almost uh, normalcy across uh, the greater part of Victoria. Uh, those numbers continuing to plummet across uh, the greater Victoria on the state level. Um, let's uh, catch up with our COVID-19 reporter, Piers Cunningham, for a further update on these numbers, implications, and where to from here. Good morning, Piers. Morning, Brendan. Yes, 24 days and counting of no new cases, no deaths. 7,261 tests conducted in the last day or so. So that number's not that high, and, and people do need to realise, as I'm sure people do, that, that the figures we have are only based on the tests conducted. Uh, you can't test everyone. The more tests there are, the, the better the figures. Well, it's been a recurring theme, hasn't it, from the Victorian government that they do want as many numbers as possible to be tested in order to prove that, um, of course, the virus is gone, waning and perhaps finished in our state for the next little while. Mm, that's right. And they have found traces of it in sewerage in certain parts of Melbourne. I think the southwestern areas, there's been a little bit of concern that, uh, that it's showing up, but there's, there's certain vagueness about that because the virus can apparently... You can get fragments of it showing up uh, well after people have actually recovered from the illness. Uh, so but being discharged and finding their way into the sewerage system. But they, they are doing pop-up testing and encouraging people to get tested in those areas uh, just to try to maintain those figures. And it gets harder, doesn't it? Because if you don't have symptoms, then why would you go and get tested? But uh, you do need to get tests in to be able to come up with those figures. 
The other interesting thing coming out of the news cycle in the last uh, 24 hours or so is showing that uh, people basically have a greater immunity once exposed to the COVID virus than they were first thinking. So that again, as well as far as the uh, vaccine is concerned, looks like we are going to get some sort of immunity from a vaccine when and if it's uh, distributed. Yeah, well, that, that's going to be vital, isn't it? I mean, otherwise you're going to have to keep getting top-ups and if the virus mutates over time, which they tend to do, then the vaccine may lose its effectiveness. So it'll be really interesting to see how all this pans out and, and it may be something that we just have to learn to live with and we do learn to live with, you know, just as we, we, we're used to living with the seasonal influenza, maybe we add, we add COVID-19 to that list of things that, uh, you know, we get a shot for each year and, and it gets adjusted and tweaked to the latest mutations that are going around. What was exciting yesterday was, uh, as, of, as of 11.59 last night, uh, 22nd November, we were moved into the next stage, and that's based on those very good figures that, that we just mentioned. So workplaces uh, are, that are currently working from home, such as offices in the CBD, uh, to return for up to 25% of their work for workforce per site from the 30th of November 2020. So that's a kind of forward announcement there. And I guess one of the big things uh, was that face covering, that mandatory indoors and outdoor uh, face covering that people have had to wear, uh, it's being taken away for outdoor usage in most circumstances. So it's no longer theoretically a fine for not having a mask on. Uh, you are allowed to be out and about without a mask on. That'll be good for people as the weather hots up and people who are asthmatic or people who've got breathing issues completely unrelated to COVID will be happy that that change has taken place. There are, of course, uh, certain instances where masks are still required and, uh, and they're saying, this is according to the DHHS website, that uh, they're not required outdoors except where physical distancing cannot be maintained, uh, such as farmers' markets and other outdoor retail. I think the Premier gave the example, if you're in Bunnings, if you're inside the store, you need to have a mask on, but if you're waiting outside in the, in the garden section, you can have your mask off. Indeed. So interesting days ahead. And I think probably we've learnt to use the mask, and I think probably a little bit like some of the big Asian cities, we're probably going to see the use... Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty regularly, I would suggest across uh, most of most of Melbourne over the next little while. Absolutely, and, and there's been that you know there's been a lot of con- contention about whether masks outdoors do much good. In fact, Jeff Wells from the COVID Medical Network, who we have talked about, he was one of the doctors who wrote that open letter at the end of August to the Premier, beseeching him to relax the uh, the, the lockdown measures, the stage four lockdown measures that we were in then because of the mental health crisis and the other physical and and, uh, psychological problems that were flowing from that that degree of isolation. He did say to me uh, quite clearly that he thought that outdoors masks really are of of very questionable um, safety value. Uh, And that may be reflected in in the change that we've made. However, obviously, if you're at the MCG and you're, you know, the cricket or something in the Boxing Day test, which I believe is going to be at quarter capacity, it's going ahead against the Indians, the old rivals, but it is going to be required that, uh, that you have quite a bit of distancing and if you're at the crowd, you're waiting to get a beer at, uh, at one of the breaks or, or uh, you know, watching on the TV inside the stadium somewhere, then you'd be wearing a mask, I, I would suggest. 
So, so the Australian Open tennis is another another event that's going ahead. It may be delayed. I'm not sure about that. They're talking about it being delayed until February. Uh, but I think again, uh, any kind of dense, high density crowd situation you find yourself in, it would be wise to wear a mask. And this is where some common sense comes in. Uh, but if you've got some space between you and other people outside, then then uh, the mask is, is less necessary. You can imagine some of the pressure on the Victorian government then as far as big events are concerned to try and get the city back up and get the dynamic happening again. You know, something like the tennis, you can imagine that there's a lot of sort of frenetic negotiating going on at the moment as well. And I would say that the first Grand Slam of the year, they would probably be very, very happy to get it underway down here in Melbourne, one of the big uh, premier events, of course. And remember, of course, we were on the verge of getting the Australian Formula One Grand Prix underway uh, last year and it was only about a week out when they pulled the plug on that so it'll be interesting to see whether early in the new year we get the Grand Prix as well. I would figure that given the way it's been running internationally we will see the Formula One back as well early in the new year. Yeah again with with limits on crowds I assume or or, you know more emphasis there is general admission at Albert Park so instead of being in a stand you can spread yourself out throughout the park around the track and, and therefore have quite a large crowd but with social distancing. So that's an event which kind of lends itself to, uh, to, to, to sort of maintaining a, a distance between patrons, something like a tennis event if you're sitting in the, you know, one of the, the centre court at, uh, you know, the Australian Open, it is a bit hard to, to socially distance. So I'd imagine that they, they won't be operating at full capacity. Uh, but it's great that the events, these and other events are going to go ahead. Boxing Day Test is another one. Uh, a lot of uh, MCG members and, and regular, uh, you know, lovers of cricket will be pleased to know that that's opening up again, albeit with, I believe, uh, only a quarter capacity. So there's a balance uh, to get into that uh, that that uh, you know very famous and popular. Boxing Day test that's yeah. held in Melbourne every year. Actually, just thinking about the Formula One Grand Prix as well, Piers, it's probably going to take on a little bit of a picnic feel, a little bit uh, like the 1950s Grand Prix that were down there when the likes of the Sterling Mosses of this world weren't around Albert Park. It will be quite an interesting feel to uh, to the Formula One if indeed they do get it up early in the new year. Um, Piers, we're obviously monitoring the situation, I would say, as we, we were talking about, uh, masks, I think, are here to stay, probably at least until we get this vaccine. And I wonder whether, in fact, even post-vaccine, whether we'll probably get into some sort of a habit of having a mask not too far away. I mean, flu numbers have been down this year. Transmissible disease has been down this year as well. Been pretty amazing, the impact that the masks seem to be having. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it shows it shows what what can be done about those things. That we, you know, often some flu seasons are worse than others, as we know. And obviously, having that flu shot is a is a good thing, uh, but it can vary in effectiveness. It sort of as it seems to be a bit of potluck in how well they they gauge what's going down overseas before they they concoct the flu jab that we, you know, get in about May each year before the before the winter flu season begins. But definitely, and the Premier has talked about this sort of cultural shift towards wearing masks. And if you go to a lot of places in Asia, people who are sick in particular, there is a, there's a cultural um, a move or a, a cultural... Um, expectation. You know, way, yeah, expectation, yes, true, to, to wear a mask to actually, for the, for the good of others. So it's an unselfish move, and it does reflect that, that, that the main benefit of a mask seems to be to protect others if you have something that you might pass on rather than protecting you from others. I think that is the, the, um, the underlying medical belief about masks. 
but yeah, you're right, and and it's probably a good thing. I mean, if you can avoid getting a cold or, or, or spreading it to people at work or having it go around the schools and all that sort of stuff, then then that's actually good for everyone. It is so, good for everyone. Well, we're certainly and countries like Japan and, and South Korea and, and those sort of places, which have done fairly well in dealing with with COVID and the pandemic, they're countries that have got that well embedded in their in their um, cultures. And uh, in Tokyo, for example, people in the, in the you know, packed subway system, they wear masks as they're sick and that's, that is expected and it's part of the sort of the quorum of, of the society. So we will monitor this situation, of course, and uh, as we celebrate down here, as we've said in the past, peers across in uh, north, the northern hemisphere at least, in some parts of the northern hemisphere, North America, for instance, Canada now as well, and Europe are really still absolutely reeling from some of these big numbers. We here in Victoria celebrating. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed. We'll be back uh, with you again on Wednesday. Look forward to speaking to you then, Piers. Then. Good on you. Thank you very much indeed. Piers Cunningham, our special COVID-19 reporter here as uh, we open up for business at RPPFM. Certainly hope that uh, your business is really beginning to strap in, kick the tyres and light the fires as well. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.